Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause, doing something a little different on the show this week. I've met some really interesting people lately, and I want to share those interviews with you. You're going to meet an actor turned stand-up. You're going to meet the first woman director of a Pixar short. You're also going to meet a man who's a specialist in superhero ethics. First up, though, Brad Bird. You know him as the director of Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. You know him as the director of Ratatouille, The Incredibles. He's back 14 years after the incredible success of The Incredibles with Incredibles 2. Here's Brad Bird. So there's two elements to The Incredibles films. There's the superhero side, there's the family side. I've always thought that the family side was actually more important than the superhero stuff. Oh, it where, is. Where do you fall on it? Absolutely. That, I agree with you 100%. Um, I, when I first uh, was doing the film, or first working on it, uh, I thought, I don't really know enough about comic books or superheroes. So, I mean, I, I looked at them a little bit when I was a kid, but people assume that I, I consumed a lot of them, mm -hmm. and I didn't. I, I don't know what issue 47 of Superman is. Um, so I thought, I need to bone up on this. And after about a half hour in the store, I just realized every power has been done by somebody that isn't, you know, every power that isn't absurd. And then I realized I'm not really interested in the powers in and of themselves. And I thought, well, what am I interested in? I'm interested in the family. Mm -hmm. And I'm interested then in how superpowers can comment on the family and the times in people's lives. And so uh, men are expected to be strong, and so I made Bob super strong. Uh, mothers are expected to be pulled in 16 different directions at once, so I made her elastic. Um, teenagers are insecure and defensive, so I made her invisible with force fields. <laughs> and 10-year-old boys are energy balls who want to press every button and open every door. Um, so uh, I made them have super speed. And then babies are unknowns, and, and uh, that they can be nothing and they can be everything. And, and so uh, this film explores that a little more. The audience knows from the first movie that Jack-Jack has multiple powers, mm -hmm. but the, uh, his parents and family don't, and, and in this film they find out. That's one of many things that happens in this film. Yeah, we, and we won't give any of them away. All right. We don't want to give anything away. The thing that I found really interesting about this, and it is curious to hear you talk about the creation of the characters and the, and the meaning behind it, because I thought so often in this film that there was subtext that you can either choose to have a look at or not, depending on, on your right. level of... of of interest well, in the whole thing. You know, animation is often seen as a, a kiddie medium, yeah. and, and it really isn't. Um, so I've always kind of tried to, I always kind of bristle at that uh, distinction. And uh, what a lot of people don't remember is that Bugs Bunny was actually meant for adults. Right. Um, it wasn't meant for kids. People connect it with, um, well, it was on in, you know, uh, in the morning, and it was on after school. Uh, so the, it's for kids. That came later. Yeah, it was years after yeah, they played theatrical. When it, yeah, when it was originally made, it was for the audience that was there to see the new Bogart film or the new Betty Davis movie. And so these were sophisticated people, even though Bugs Bunny is slapstick. Half of the jokes in there are will go over your head if right. you're a little kid. And yet, there's enough comedy in there that a little kid is going to be really well entertained too. But what's great about something like Bugs Bunny is that 
um, as you get older, you are still laughing. You're just laughing at different things. Right. And that's something that, that I've always loved about. All my favorite animation had that quality. Do you think then that The Incredibles is a political film? And I ask you, I ask you that only because all the way through, we live in kind of weird, troubled times, and all the way through, this movie is about finding something to believe in and being true to believing but in isn't, it. And but isn't that what the Greek, Greek mythology is about? I guess, but it resonates quite loudly right now, don't you think? Well, I hope it does. <laughs> um, but it isn't done with a political right. intent. Um, I'm mainly, you know, we're here for entertainment yeah. to uh, uh, your summer, it's hot outside, get, go into a nice dark air conditioned place, get yourself a large popcorn and, and rock out. Um, but uh, that said, we also want to touch on things that have to do with people's lives. Right. And um, if they can make connections to what's happening in their life now, that's great. But I also want them to make connections 100 years from now. Yeah. So it's trying to find uh, some universal things that is about being human and being alive and, and touch on those. I do often find if you have a, a, a new entertainment, a new film that has references to Britney Spears or whatever the thing is, I they often wonder, what, yeah, what happens 100, you know, will in yeah. Casablanca, you know, doesn't have references like that, and, and no, as a result, and, it's timeless. And, right? it, and it's weird because um, timeless doesn't mean that there's no period to the film, right. you know. All the President's Men, to me, is a film that is very much about, you know, uh, the early 70s, yeah, yeah. and yet, it is timeless. It's always going to be a great film. So uh, that's a, it's a weird uh, thing to define. But um, yeah, you're trying to get at something that feels real. Yeah. Did working on live action, and particularly with Mission Impossible, did that give you a, a different idea of the action in this film and a different idea of how to create No, the it's action? actually the reverse because yeah. Tom, uh, Tom Cruise saw The Incredibles and asked uh, to meet uh, with me, and I went over to his house, and we ended up having this great, like, two or three hour discussion about movies, right. just about what we loved in movies. And he loved the action scenes in uh, uh, The Incredibles and said he really liked the staging and the way they were laid out. And he said, You know, would you ever want to do a live action film? And I said, Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, absolutely. I've always wanted to do one. And uh, he said, you know, we should do one. And, and then a few years later, um, their mission popped up. And there it is. we had a great time. And the action scenes in this feel a little different for me than they did in the first film. Oh. Is, well, is it because the technology that you have at your disposal is, is different. And I, I, I wonder, there's a scene well, near the better, end that looks yeah. like it was sort of almost handheld. There was a, there's that shot, and I thought it was beautiful and cool and kind of put me in the moment while it was uh -huh. happening. And, and I had a little bit of that in the first one, though. Yeah. There's a scene, uh, 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 there's a shot where they run from the car into the house, and they discover Syndrome is, right. is there in the first film. And the, I told the animator, uh, uh, can we make it like a steady cam shot? Right. And so uh, this, the camera guy got it about 80% of the way there, but it took an animator to go, no, when you have a steady cam, the weight of the camera does this. Yeah, yeah. And, and it made it look like it was a, a real, you know, movie shot happening spontaneously. But uh, 
uh, I'm glad you think that we we got that in this. Um, yeah, no, we worked it. on it. Yeah, yeah, no, well, I mean, it, it, because it, it is about family, it is about family, but there are huge action set pieces in this movie. There are. Like really giant action set pieces. Yeah, and they go good with popcorn, too. <laughs> That'll be the, the poll quote they from the do. interview. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, now, you're talking about... Uh, They're specifically engineered in that sweet spot between <laughs> popcorn and cola. That's right, yeah. that's right, with Twizzlers right there. Yeah. Right there. Um, you were talking about a, an animator came in and had a look at that Steadicam shot and stuff. What, what different eye does an animator bring that someone who only works in live action, what, what is the difference there? Well, it depends. There, there are as many different kinds of filmmakers as there are different kinds of films. Yeah. And um, some live action directors have not that much interest in where the camera is. They kind of say, I want close-ups right. and a couple of wide shots. Just you compose the shot <laughs> and my editors and I will figure it out. Yeah. And then there are other filmmakers the ones that I like better, <laughs> that have strong opinions on where their cameras should be, like Orson Welles and David Lean and Spielberg and uh, Coppola and uh, uh, on and on and on, that uh, uh, really have in their mind um, these images in this order, this connects with this. You're not close to good ideas because you work with really talented people and you want to hear what they have to say. But I come into a scene with very strong points of view on how I want to shoot it. So when I, when I moved into live action, it was actually fairly easy for me to set up shots because I had storyboarded and right. done that stuff before. I always think of, uh, when you mentioned something like that, I always think of uh, the movies of Ken Russell. Every scene ends on something that is picked up in the next scene. Right. There's a drain, yeah. and then the next scene is a rising sun. Or something. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and they move, and yeah. these shapes move all the way through. And I the, do that the, stuff, too. It's extraordinary, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 No, uh, it's fun. Uh, you know, animation was my gateway drug to film. Yeah, yeah. And uh, once I got into film, um, you know, it was just wide open. And I've tried to inform the animated films with what I've uh, gotten from so many great filmmakers. You see it in Incredibles too. There is stuff that is borrowed or, or inspired by probably, I guess. I thought like German expressionism in there. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of shadowy kind of cool scenes that I uh, think harken back to, to um, silent movies all the way they through. They do, but the also and... guys like Michael Curtiz, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, the original Robin Hood with uh, Errol Flynn, really the Robin yeah, Hood, yeah, the, the official Robin, Robin, yeah, Hood. Yeah, yeah. Robin Hood. The good Robin Hood. Yeah. But uh, it was interesting film because it was filmed by two different guys. Right. And uh, they started it with one director whose name I can't remember, William Kigley, maybe? Mm. I don't know. Anyway, and uh, that stuff is filmed very kind of. Right. straight up, straight ahead, everything's kind of in the center, and then you go inside and suddenly there are shadows and the cameras are just, <laughs> the angles are so cool and dynamic and you realize that's the part that Michael Curtiz yeah. filmed. And so, like, I'm all about the Michael Curtiz yeah, yeah. half of that film. Well, we see it in Incredibles 2. It's a, it's, it's a beautiful looking film. Thank you. That was Brad Bird, the director of Incredibles 2. It's in theaters right now and it's worth a look. A little bit later on, I'll introduce you to Domi Shi. She's the Canadian-born director of Bao, the short film that plays just before Incredibles 2. First up, though, Travis Smith. He's a Concordia University professor and the author of Superhero Ethics. Stay with us. 
My guest is Travis Smith. He is the author of Superhero Ethics, 10 Comic Book Heroes, 10 Ways to Save the World, Which One Do We Need Most Now? So tell me, why do a scholarly book, an ethics book, about something that is living at the very heart of popular culture right now, which are superheroes? Right. Well, superheroes are enjoying a sort of greater popularity now than ever before, certainly a lot more than they did when I was growing up with them in the 1980s. Uh, I just got back from the Ottawa Comic Con where there's hundreds and hundreds of mm-hmm. young people having fun in costumes, and it wasn't that way when I was young. Um, I, uh, I, so I've been reading comic books since I was young. I, By day, I'm a professor of Uh, political philosophy, and I had the opportunity to combine these two interests and talk about the ways in which uh, things that are in the sort of popular discourse, the things in the popular culture, um, can still be sort of uh, representative of and lead to uh, big ideas and answers to the timeless questions. And so I thought I'd look at the ways in which superheroes represent different kinds of human excellence or people that we would admire or like to imitate, uh, to emulate uh, different ways of handling the the struggles and the challenges that life throws at us and, uh, and, and that sort of thing. Avengers Infinity War. What do we learn from that film? <laughs> That's, that actually is a kind of a tough question, uh, given that film in particular. Um, and that, that it's film, only half the story, too. Maybe it, that's part of it. That is exactly yeah. half of it, right. Well, um, let's look it, at the characters then and break it sure. down. Maybe that's a little easier. Sure. So yeah, the no, Hulk, that's... what do we learn from the Hulk? Right. Uh, when I look at the Hulk... I see a character that one of the things is that Hulk is always saying that Hulk wants to be left alone, Mm -hmm. right? And uh, in in our society today, I think about the ways in which, uh, you know, our tendency toward individualism in our society makes us, you know, wish that other people wouldn't bother us. You you leave me alone, I'll leave you Mm -hmm. alone. Uh, Let let me do my thing, you do your thing. We won't get in each other's way. We won't be too judgmental of each other. And that's often combined with sort of an expectation that if only I could be left alone to do my own thing, then I'd succeed in life, right? Uh, I wouldn't get hurt. Uh, and I and I get to enjoy the things that I prefer, uh, and I'd be happy, and I'd leave you alone to be happy. And Hulk is always uh, finding himself frustrated by the fact that both other people constantly do get in his way, and he's not able to to be alone like he says he wants. But also, he constantly finds himself uh, we're stuck with obligations to help other people. Uh, he gets really upset when he sees other people's right to be left alone being infringed upon as well. Uh, so he sympathizes. Uh, with other people. He's limited, I think, by the desire uh, to have a live-and-let-live uh, lifestyle, uh, which, you know, uh, in comparison with people who want to meddle in our lives too much has got something going for it, but it also sort of uh, falls short for, from, uh, of, you know, a, a life well-lived, fully flourished in a community where we, where we, where we share our uh, aspirations and activities with each other and not just simply retreat into ourselves. So from the libertarian Hulk, then Iron Man, which represents something else again. Yes. Yeah. No, I, I, when I treat the characters in the book, um, I treat some of them critically as well. As, I try to treat all of them in a, in a fashion that's critical and friendly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I, and I do find that as, as charming as Tony Stark is, I mean, boy, oh boy, is Robert Downey Jr. succeeded in making all kinds of people fall in love with Iron Man that had never really heard of him before mm-hmm. the first film came out. Uh, 
it's it's the case that you know he's he's a deeply flawed character, right? He's he's somebody who trusts too much in technological power, uh, and he's and he's determined to transform himself into uh, a man-machine hybrid out of a sense that. I would say it's it's a, as if it's a cosmic injustice that a brain as brilliant as his is stuck in a fleshy body that threatens its you know the annihilation of his mind uh, at any time, and he's going to uh, wage a personal war against uh, human nature and our embodiedness, uh, and and try to find ways to, as we're transcend our humanity by melding ourselves with. Uh, the machine. I think it's interesting because I grew up, you know, on the Star Wars movies, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, back then, uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi says of Darth Vader that uh, he's more machine than men now, twisted and evil, right? And, uh, you know, back then we understood that you didn't need to add uh, twisted and evil. If somebody <laughs> was more machine than man now, we understood that was twisted <laughs> and evil. But now with Tony Stark, we we uh, we sort of envy his man-machine hybrid nature, and there, you you read you know the, the futurists and Silicon Valley types promising promising us immortality and perfect bodies or machine brains, and so Tony Stark really does represent the the sort of uh, let's say misanthropy that is involved in the technological project, given that we're sort of upset with, dissatisfied with, ungrateful for our embodied existence. We live in troubled times. Uh, you flick on the news at any given day and there's going to be something terrible happening somewhere in the world. Are the superhero movies a, a, an answer to that, a remedy for what's happening in the world? You've got people who are, although possibly troubled, battling their own demons. They are good. They are heroes. They're here to help us and save the world. At the end of every movie, they have to save the world. Is that one of the reasons that they're so popular right now? Um, it, it might be, but if it is, I think that's kind of distressing. Right. Um, part of my book is to say, rather than looking at the superheroes as these extraordinary, almost mythological characters, right, uh, proxies for the divine, um, I try to humanize them in my book and right. try to point out the ways in which they represent the ordinary struggles of ordinary people day by day in regular lives uh, that we can understand metaphorically, right? We can mm-hmm. see how their, the character types that they represent, the powers they wield, can be sort of applied in a metaphorical or analogical fashion to ordinary social and political life. Um, and in my book, I talk about how it's kind of worrisome the degree to which uh, some people might be prone to you know, yearning for uh, you know, uh, people with extraordinary abilities or smarts or uh, know-how to, to come to our rescue as if uh, the world is doomed unless there is something mm-hmm. like a superhero to save us. Um, I, I think down, that that way lies the desire to, you know, have someone like a Superman be our king or something. And that, that, that personally, I find that kind of off-putting. The book is called Superhero Ethics, 10 Comic Book Heroes, 10 Ways to Save the World, Which One Do We Need Most Now, uh, by Travis Smith. Travis, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you so much, Richard. It's been a real pleasure.
That was Travis Smith, an associate professor of political science at Concordia University, on his book, Superhero Ethics. Next up, Domi Shi. She's the Canadian-born director of Bao, the short film that plays just before Incredibles 2 in theaters this weekend. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. I want to introduce you to Domi Shi. She is the director of Bao. That's the short film that's playing in front of Incredibles 2 this weekend. She's made Pixar history as the first woman director of an animated short. And Bao's a really cool little film. It's about a Chinese-Canadian woman suffering from empty nest loneliness but then one of her dumplings comes to life. It's a really beautiful film. We talked about where the idea came from and the idea of parents not wanting to let go of their children. Here's Domi Shi. Tell me how the short films are chosen to go in front of the Pixar films. It's a big deal to get one of them there. How did Bao end up there? Oh yeah, it was was 2015 and Pixar, did like a, it was like an open edition for the whole studio. Like anybody who had ideas for short films, they would hear it. So uh, someone could sign up and they had to pitch three ideas to a panel of judges made up of directors, producers, executives. It's like American Idol or something like that. (laughs) There were multiple rounds. It did feel like American Idol. And I think there was about... I thought there was like around 20-ish, but someone told me there were around 60 people that auditioned or applied. Uh, I was one of them. I pitched Bao with two other ideas. uh, And, you know, it slowly made its way through each round, and it ended up getting greenlit as the next theatrical short. Uh, And that was really, really exciting. It must have been exciting. I mean, it's the kind of thing that would sort of blow your mind a little bit. You must have grown up partially watching these things <laughs> yeah. and then working there and you worked on Inside Out and other mm-hmm. things uh, working there you know what a big deal that is yeah yeah um it was it was crazy i i mean i even when i did get greenlit though uh, maybe because i'm very paranoid I, I i don't think i have it in the bag until the film right. is completely done right. so for the next three years, it was still, like, I was still, like, working as if, like, it could get canned at any moment. <laughs> and I think that helped, that helped keep me grounded as well. But Absolutely. now I can, now I can kind of sit back and celebrate and enjoy the reactions. To so the tell us about the story, yeah. because it, it, it's quite startling, and it doesn't give anything <laughs> away yeah. to say that a, a, essentially a dumpling comes to life. Yeah. It's more than that. But when that happens mm-hmm. in the film... I thought, what is this about? What <laughs> yeah. can this be? Yeah, yeah. I, I wanted the audience to be continuing to ask that question, like, where is this going? Like, um, and just be taken for like an emotional roller coaster mm. ride. Uh, so Dumpling, oh, sorry, the bow was just um, me wanting to uh, just combine all of the things that I loved, uh, you know, in film, but just also in, in, in my own life and just put it like in this short film. Like I wanted to celebrate food. I'm a huge foodie. I wanted to celebrate the preparation of food. I think it's so cool to see that on the big screen. But I also wanted to celebrate Chinese food because um, it's it's really important to me. I grew up making dumplings with my mom. In Toronto. In Toronto, yeah, yeah in, in our house in Scarborough, like around the dinner table, um, 
over Chinese New Year, Christmas, and it's just something that we would always do together as a family. And I thought like this would, the dumpling would be a perfect vessel to tell this, this story about this family, this relationship between this overprotective parent learning to let go of their child. And uh, that was also, you know, part of my own life too. Like I was that overprotective little dumpling uh, <laughs> whose mom like learns to let go of her. Um, so yeah. And why then is the, is Bao, is the dumpling a, a boy rather than a, a girl? Yeah. Uh, well, when I first started, like the very first image I drew was just this dumpling uh, being, the, sorry, it, it was this, uh, this Chinese mom like nuzzling this dumpling boy <laughs> to death, this little baby dumpling boy. Yeah. And since it was a boy from the very first, you know, conception of it, I decided to just roll with it. Um, I thought there was a lot of fun things I could do with his design, like having the sesame seed beard <laughs> and like the girlfriend yeah, yeah. and just a lot of fun stuff with his attitude and his clothing. Uh, but also I wanted to kind of keep that distance, like a little bit of separation between myself and, and my work uh, because I didn't want it to feel too autobiographical. I wanted there to be room to explore ideas that weren't necessarily, you know, uh, you know, exactly something that happened in, in, in my life. And I also didn't want to uh, become too close with the material, so I would treat it too preciously. Like, I wanted to be able to cut it, cut stuff that needed to be cut and to move things around and to make the necessary changes if need be. So. It was called killing your angels, right? Yeah. Or killing your babies. Killing your I babies. Yeah. And, and how much of that happens? I mean, I always think that animation is such a strict kind of discipline. I mm -hmm. mean, you have... Uh, it takes a long time to create these images. You put it together. So I would think before you spend all that time doing that, yeah. that you have a, a complete vision from start to finish. But over three years, yeah. ideas come up, things change. Yeah, yeah. Um, in Well, in animation, uh, we well, especially for this short, we worked to develop the story and to lock down the story as much as possible in story reel form. So that's when... Uh, we uh, we so I st I spent a lot of time early on storyboarding the right. whole short from start to finish, hand drawing, hand drawing yeah. it, hand drawing all of the, the the gags and and working with an editor to time everything out, and so we would have like a rough draft mm -hmm. of what the whole short would end up being, and um, you know I made the decision to just lock those story reels and we weren't going to change, you know. Too many things. Hopefully, ninety-nine percent of the stuff would stay, uh, you know, in in the short, and that would be used as the blueprint for the other departments down the pipeline. So hopefully, we uh, made all of the story decisions early on in drawing form, because you know, throwing out a drawing is so much cheaper than throwing out a yeah, completed right. animated shot. And so from there, um, you know, everything else was built uh, using that story real as reference. I have always heard that Pixar, uh, just as a culture, is really collaborative. Mm -hmm. Other people come in and people that aren't working on your film necessarily or from other departments or whatever will come in and have a look and say, oh, I don't know, I think this would be good or I don't like that or I love that. Uh, tell me about that kind of collaboration because I sometimes wonder I, I think just maybe I'm too controlly. I'd be like, I don't know. I don't want everyone, you know, poking around in my work. But it seems to work. Yeah, yeah. Um, you have to be, again, like selective about it. You can't yeah. just show it to 
everybody because then you'll have you'll be bombarded with yep. so many notes and opinions but um everyone is super generous with their notes and their time and uh yeah like throughout the process of developing the story because i was going for like a very uh surprising uh and like a kind of nuanced ending I, I wanted it to read as clearly as possible right. so it was important for me to show the story reels to different groups of people uh, groups of people uh, you know that were my colleagues people I trusted that I really uh, wanted their 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 take on and their um, their advice on how to make this story you know feel as clear and emotional as possible but also like sometimes I would show it to just like almost like random groups of people that I would uh, draw from other departments in the studio just to get a fresh eye on it because when you're showing this short in theaters to the world you know it's not going to be like most of the people are just going to be normal people they're not going to be people who work in film or animation so you want it to read to the average person as well so that was important but that I would save for like certain screenings and I would have like a almost like my own brain trust that I would show the short to and get their advice on. Pete Doctor was definitely a a person that we leaned heavily on. He's the executive producer, but also helped us just like... Made Inside Out and lots of other things. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. Incredible guy. Um, Did you show your family? I did. I actually showed my mom the the reels early on, like just to get her take on it too. And uh, she's finally seen the completed short a couple weeks ago at the premiere in LA. Um, She she likes it. She's like like all surprised that like everyone recognizes her, (laughs) and they're like wanting to take pictures with her and wanting to interview her. She's like, wow, I'm famous now. (laughs) I'm like, yeah. Like we credited her as an official cultural consultant on the short, so she like. She could have her own IMDb page now, <laughs> so she's pretty happy about that. That's Domi Shi. She came to Toronto from China with her family when she was just two years old. She went to Sheridan College's well-regarded animation program, interned at Pixar Animation Studios in California, and now she is the first female director of a Pixar short film. You can see it in front of Incredibles 2 this weekend, and I'll tell you, it's worth the price of admission alone. When we come back... Let's meet Jeremy Piven. You know him from Entourage and any number of movies. Well, he's doing something a little different now. He's a stand-up comic. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. Jeremy Piven is a three-time Emmy Award winner for his work on Entourage. You know him from countless movies and other television shows. He's doing something a little different these days, though. He's putting himself up there on stage doing stand-up comedy. In our chat here, he talks about the importance of bombing as a stand-up comic. Here's Jeremy Piven. I have a buddy of mine, um, Adam Hunter, who's a great stand-up comic, and he does this Monday night show at a, a little bar, tiny little bar called The Dime. And it's probably, you know, it's just such a tough room. And the first night I went there, I bombed really badly, and I was... Uh, I, I just felt like, you know, I needed to, it, it was just overwhelming and you, and you second guess everything. What am I doing? Who do I think I am? Why did I and, think that was funny? Whatever. Yeah. 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 That I, I just need to, I need to really hang it up. It doesn't seem to make any sense. I'm kidding myself. You, you have, and, and Chappelle said to me, you got to bomb, but you got to bomb at the right time. <laughs> and, 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 you know, you can't think of a guy like, you know, Dave Chappelle bombing, but the thing is, he's, he even says it, you know, he's evil can evil, he gets paid for the attempt, and if you're not willing 
to make a fool of yourself, especially with acting. That that was the key for me as an actor was I was always willing to look ridiculous because if you don't take a chance like that, you're never going to grow and to see what's there. And so I think because I've been a performer my whole life and an actor and been on stage and I, you know, was a stage actor before anything, because I've, I've logged all those hours and navigated that space, I'm able to navigate the space as a stand-up because there are so many different elements to stand-up comedy. Of course, there's the performance and then there's the writing aspect. And you're the, you are the playwright, you're the star, the editor, the director, the producer, all those things. And yeah, it's incredibly daunting. But, um, if, you know, in your case, I would tell you because you do have experience, uh, as, you know, performing in different ways and venues, I think if you are willing to get up there, fall on your face, log the hours, learn from it, and, and, you know, people, I, I think we can only grow from any type of failure. Um, and there isn't a person alive. Michael Jordan experienced a, a great deal of failure in high school. You know, he didn't make the varsity team, and that's a part of the chip on his shoulder. Um, we all have those stories. I have those stories, and I, and I tell them on stage. Um, but if you're not willing, I think none, none of us want, want to experience rejection. Um, it's human nature. But as an actor, I've experienced enough for, you know, 10,000 lifetimes just because, you know, to get a job, you have to just keep auditioning and getting turned down until you finally get one. And I think the the illusion is that people see you working. Oh, he's an actor. He's uh, He's high profile. He's always experienced this success and that's not the case everyone has a journey very few people can pop a wheelie from the jump and do it their entire lives mm -hmm. well i think failure sense? is honestly the most important thing i think persistence luck and failure are the three key elements in creating a career for yourself in no matter what it is whether it's on stage or as a mechanic or whatever whatever the job might be i think you learn more from failure than you do from success Oh, absolutely. In fact, um, success can be incredibly dangerous, mm -hmm. incredibly dangerous, and fame is, there's nothing natural about it. And navigating that is, is a great test. Um, and it's very unnatural. Think about it. As human beings, are we supposed to be known on a mass level, yeah. you know? Um and it changes people's perception of you, and you know it can change the perception of yourself. You know, um, and to get back to your point, the idea that because what would happen with me as an actor is I, whenever I would get a meeting, even after after I had some success with Entourage, for instance, when I would get a meeting in, with someone, the response was always, "Oh, uh, well, he's different than I thought he would be." That's always the response, and I'm not offended by it. Um, I, you know, I'm just happy to have the opportunity to meet someone and for them to see who I am. Now, it's as if I get those meetings, but we just have large groups of them, and then it's my job to entertain them. Right. And so it's just incredible, and uh, I'm just having a such a great time 
I can't even tell you. And believe me, it's it's funny because I love it when when you know I welcome people who um, either have the wrong idea about me or um, feel that I can't do it, or I'll be running out the clock or do a Q and A or something like that. I I welcome everyone because I, I just am such a fan and respect the form. And I get up there and I do, this is stand-up. This is a stand-up act that I'm doing. This is not me running out the clock doing a celebrity appearance. The, the great compliments that I've gotten from people, unless every single person is lying, and by the way, that might be true. <laughs> I, I might be viciously mediocre and everyone's being kind to me. People in the comedy <laughs> world aren't that kind. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. I mean, I think, you know, you've got... I'm trying to think of the exact amount of time. You've got about, I would say, you know, a solid two minutes of courtesy laughs yeah. with people. They're like, oh, wow, okay, he's been in my living room, and that's him. And you could say anything for about a minute and a half. And then you got to get him. And I love that. I love that challenge. And I love growing from, you know, from each night. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a process, and it's a different... It's a it's a weird cousin. I'm trying. I I don't. I can't imagine. A, I can't think of an analogy. But it's almost the mixed martial arts, as opposed to just. I feel like what I've been doing has been. You know, I've been doing jujitsu contests, or I've been on. You know, been doing strictly Muay Thai, and now I've got to put it all together myself. Now I'm writing. Now I'm directing it. Now I'm starring it, and. And it's amazing, and I love it, um, and it's 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 a great gift. Do you think yeah. that uh, learning all the that you've learned from doing this and feeling I don't know re-energized and sort of pumped up by it? Do you think that when you uh, make the next film or the next television show or something, that you'll bring something that's different from the stand-up that you've learned into that into the acting world? That's a weird question, maybe. No, it's a gr it's a great question, and I and the reason I'm silent is because I'm trying to think exactly how it would work. Because here's what I think. I don't want to overanalyze this, but I think that everything that I am as an actor and performer and, and a guy who with a background in improv and sketch comedy and all that stuff, I bring that to the stand-up stage. I bring the 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 presence, the timing, the performance. And what I desperately, what I, the variable that I need and have needed to work on is the writing, is the material. Oh, that doesn't work. Explore that. Cut that. Whatever. That's because I'm already a performer. And, I, and forgive me for talking about myself. It's, it sounds so awkward. This is what we're but, doing here. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, um, so I'm bringing all of my experience as a performer into the stand-up game. And so what I'm learning more than anything is really how is the writing crafting the the act itself through the material so that and and working on timing absolutely all those things fine tuning the performance with the with the writing but what I think I might be bringing back to film and TV and the performance of that is I've always brought my own options as, to say as a character, you know, um, while I'm doing entourage, they don't yell cut 
and they wanted us to go by the book and say every word. And people said, no way, you were improvising. And I said, oh, thank you so much. That's what an actor does. It's his job to make all of the dialogue look, look improvisational. There's no trick. There's no, I didn't do anything special. I did my job. You have to make massive speeches look totally improvisational. That's the great gift of acting. Now, there were times when they didn't yell cut, and I'm looking at Kevin Connolly, who played E, and I know that as an actor, you know, he's not great with a lot of physical contact, and I know that the character isn't either, so to make him feel uncomfortable, I say, you want to hug it out, you little bitch? You want to hug it out? And I improvise that, and I grab him because I know that the character, and, and no, every, it, it'll, I believe it will result in comedy, and I stayed in character because the character is aggressive, <laughs> Ari Gold and awkward, and all those things. So that was an improv line. That's me writing on my feet, right? So that, this is a long-winded way of answering your question, so that if I'm lucky enough to be able to, to, to contribute as a writer, improvisational entity, the stand-up world and, and what I've been going through will absolutely, without a doubt, contribute to that because it's a writer's mindset and so that I will be able to contribute more as a creative entity than when I left last year to, to do my stand-up career. That's Jeremy Piven. You know him from Entourage, countless other television shows, on failure, fame, and how he's working to win over audiences as a stand-up comedian. You can see him at Yuck Yucks in Toronto on June 21st through June 23rd. And then check your local listings because he'll be touring across the country and you'll have a chance to see him in many other cities. And I'll tell you, he loves Canada. In a part of the interview that we didn't play, he said he'd even consider moving here. Thanks for your time today. Also, I'd like to thank my guests, Brad Bird, Domi Shi, Travis Smith, and Jeremy Piven. Also, thanks to Andre and the board, and we'll talk to you next week.